we need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking, and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Welcome back, dear listener. We're up to episode 92 of the Iron Fist and Velvet Glove podcast. It's the 20th of April, 2017. This week, we feature the return of the 12th man. Paul, 12th man, how are you? Hi, Trevor. I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm going very well. Great. Counting him down to episode 100, it's coming up for... It's very exciting, Trevor. Mm, I'm looking for uh, suggestions, dear listener, of something you think, something special for the 100th. I'm just not sure what to do. If, if possible, I was thinking of gathering together all the various characters, you know, the 12th man, the velvet glove, um, right wing Tony, so, and Hugh Harris, so we'll see what we can do. Maybe getting all those people in the room together isn't a good idea. <laughs> might be a bit of a contest mm. to um, get something in. So we'll work out what to do there. Yeah. Right, 12th man, around the world, what's happening? I've, I'm going to start with Syria. Because mm-hmm. um, I spoke about this with right-wing Tony, and I expressed my surprise that, okay, chemical weapons, not very nice, but just a normal conventional bomb, I would have thought it was equally not as nice, and suddenly it's okay for America to bomb Syria. What do you think? Well, I kind of uh, I, I kind of think chemical weapons are pretty horrific, and perhaps they do deserve a little bit of um, uh, extra condemnation. But um, I was listening to somebody on the radio on the way over, Trevor, and he was he was saying that the U.S. the current U.S. government is sending all the wrong messages to the world because he's saying he's basically saying there are you know the the number of people affected by that in Syria is such a, a small percentage of the world's... Um, even if you take out all the liberal democracies, it's still a very small proportion of all bad governments in the world. Mm. So he's, Trump is basically saying, if you don't use chemical weapons, we'll leave you alone. Basically, he's saying, yeah, do what you want. He's very chummy with... Or he, he, he sounded like he was going to be very chummy with Putin. We know Putin's not a Democrat and that, uh, you know, he's done bad things in the past inside his own country. Chechnya, for example. Um, well, he's saying potentially we'll leave you alone, but perhaps he's also saying that if there's something considered a human atrocity going on in the world, it's okay for a superpower to get involved and start dropping bombs. Like, that's the I other thing that aspect, he's saying. Yeah. So Russia could just look around the world and uh, pick a side in any dispute going on and start lopping bombs and saying, well, America's set a precedent here. As long as they're conventional bombs. Mm. So, um, okay, so you would be against the action that Trump took? Uh, Look, I couldn't say I'm against the action because I'm always in favour of, um, you know, standing up to oppressive regimes and clearly uh, Assad's regime is a shocker um, by any measure. So if if somebody from the Essential Report survey came and knocked on your door or rang you and said, do you approve or disapprove of the US bombing of Syria in response to the Syrian government's reported use of chemical weapons, which killed civilians, do you 
strongly approve, approve, disapprove, strongly disapprove, or don't know? Yeah, it's a, it's a tricky one, isn't it? Mm. I, I don't quite know, to be honest. Really? You're yeah. down for the don't knows? Well, uh, no, I, I, at the time I remember thinking, yeah, it's about time somebody did something about Syria because it's, it's clearly a mess. But obviously it's no solution at all. All yes. he did was blow up a few planes. Yes. Apparently the runway was repaired and in service the, virtually the next day. So it seemed like a symbolic act, uh, purely a symbolic act. But was it sending the right symbolism? I don't, probably not, no. Okay, so I put you down for a disapprove, perhaps. Yeah, well, you know, as I said, I have uh, have mixed feelings about it. Mm. Okay, well, uh, a central report did go around and ask Australians what they thought. Mm. And um, in the total approve category, 41%. In the disapproved category, 36%. Oh, really? So a divided nation on that mm, one. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I think I was I was more horrified than the chemical weapon attack. I was more horrified uh, a couple of days later when the, those buses with all those women and children standing around waiting to be evacuated were, were blown up. I mean, that, was, that really but, shocked me, I have to say. But, Paul, all of the human misery going on in the world, I, I mean... Yeah. North Korea is starving kids to death, but we sit back and do nothing. Like, if you're going to say we have to Absolutely. do things, we're going to be Absolutely. doing things everywhere. Absolutely. Look, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a personal hero of mine, Christopher Hitchens, years ago wrote that he thought the Americans should just go in and bomb the North Koreans and, um, you know, uh, bring them to their knees, bring the North Korean regime to their knees. He did, yeah. Right, right. Well, then he would have approved of the... Bombing. I think he was in favour of the Iraq invasion he to was, start with. Yeah, yeah. he was. Yeah. Although he probably didn't, perhaps, foresee the carnage that would follow. Mm. Before I leave, essential report. Um, accessing superannuation so that people can buy a home. This has got to be the worst idea that anybody has come up with Mm. and that a treasurer of this country could consider it. Mm. It's just going to bump up the price of a house by the average amount of a young person's superannuation Mm. and it's just going to put more money in the pockets of existing homeowners and it is a continuation of the intergenerational theft. I mean, baby boomers... Mm -hmm. Haven't you taken enough That's right. already? Like you have stolen from your children and your grandchildren right. enough already. Stop. I can't believe they Do you recall what happened when they introduced the first home buyer's grant? If it was $12,000, then the price of houses probably went up $12,000. Exactly. That's yeah. exactly what happened. And I dare say, I don't remember, but I dare say economists at the time predicted that would happen. Mm. All it did was put more money into the pockets of the sellers and, of course, the real estate agents who were very happy because they could probably sell the houses at a higher price, get a higher commission. Exactly. Yeah, it's a ridiculous idea. It's just... But you know what? I suspect, Trevor, it's it's an idea coming down from people for whom it doesn't affect, you know, people who are already relatively well off. And did you see the report about 
um, MPs' um, property um, portfolios. What, a significant number has... significant number. Yeah. Uh, I think the average was... What was it? The average was 2.5 properties per, per MP or something like that. Mm. There was something like, out of all the parliamentarians, there were only about 10 who didn't own their own home. Yes. And uh, several of them... There was one or two in the National Party who had like 10 or 15 properties, yes. I think, each. yeah. You know? Anyway, they asked Australians, do you think people should be allowed to access superannuation? And 38% were in favour. Oh, gosh. 50% said no, and 12% don't know. So, it's a uh, harebrained idea, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. so that's just uh, disappointing that 38% would think that. So, so there we go. That's Australian opinion on Syria and uh, superannuation. Back to Syria and opinion polls, and Paul, I didn't tell you about this one because I only heard it recently, and um, I've been following a new podcast called Serious Inquiries Only, and it's really good. So I recommend that one, dear listener. So this is where I've uh, stolen this bit of information from. Um, Did a poll, uh, there was a Washington Post ABC poll of Americans, and uh, how they felt about... Donald Trump's bombing of Syria in response to the chemicals. And what they found that overall, 51% of Americans approved and 40% disapproved. So no surprise there. Um, uh, Here's the interesting thing, is that um, back in 2013, there was a similar incident of chemical um, bombing and Barack Obama was considering whether to drop bombs on bits of Assad's territory. And so there was polling done at that time as to what people felt uh, should be done. And at that time, back in 2013, when Barack Obama was considering taking some action, only 22% of Republicans supported the idea. But... When you look at Republican support for Donald Trump, it's 86%, Paul. Yeah. Almost identical situation. Wow. So Clearly, you know, if anything, it was, it was more clear in the first case that um, Assad was responsible. Mm. And in that case, Russia wasn't involved. Um, so there was less risk of major international catastrophe, mm. perhaps easier to bomb than not. So uh, so just to repeat, when Obama was considering it, Republicans, only 22% supported potential bombing. Now that Trump's done it, uh, 86% uh, think it's a great idea. This just goes to show, Paul, that all of the logic and facts and common sense that you can apply to something it really doesn't matter if it just falls into groupthink territory where people say i'm in this group what's my group doing okay i'm in favor or i'm not in favor it's just i'm starting to lose faith in the ability to change minds Mm. because people are driven by this yeah sadly it seems to be true trevor that um People tend to follow the crowd, don't they? Well, the old, the old that I mean, you know, when when I was reading some of the stuff you sent me on um, the Catholic Church, and 
you know, the Catholic bishops imploring their flock to, you know, follow follow the church or follow Jesus. Are people do people really like being sheep, Trevor? Do you sometimes suspect yes. that there's something in the psyche of the average human that they're just as happy to follow somebody that they think might be right as they are to find their own course in life? I think so. I think and a lot of these issues people don't have time to could um, be part of it. Look at them. It's only because I'm obviously half barking mad that I read all this stuff. But most people just don't have the time. They're yeah. too busy with young families or jobs and yeah. whatever, just keeping them flat out. They don't yeah. have time to examine these things and think about them. And they just go, oh, I like the that leader. I like the cut of his jib or the cut of his hair. And I'll I'll go for him. And then there's this this psychological thing happening where once you've you've um, but is it time you've, or is it something you've, else? You've, because, you've, you've, as you know, I, I work in education um, with young adult students. And virtually every day, Trevor, I say to them, did you see anything interesting on the news last night? Mm. And it's rare that anyone says anything, mm. that they actually watch the news or mm. listen to the news. Quite a few of them, and, uh, uh, you know, they're foreign students, as you know, but... Mm. Uh, Quite a few of them will have some inkling as to what's going on back in the home country. But it's probably just, you know, news from family and friends. Mm. Very few of them, uh, I have to say, with, lately with the exception of the Turkish people that I, that I have contact with, they're interested. Right. Okay. Because what's happening in their country is very dramatic, as you yeah. know, and... And um, almost, well, virtually to a person, they're all against uh, Edouard, mm. the, um, the leader. Mm. And they're worried, mm. seriously worried and disgusted mm. and horrified at what he's doing. Mm. So, but apart from them, you know, most of the, uh, the other students, they're like, gee, but, I don't know. But I think what this demonstrates is that if you want to persuade somebody along a certain line... Rather than presenting the facts and a coherent logical argument, you would first of all say, what, what group do you identify with? Who, you know, which group are you part of and who's the leader of that group? Right, that leader believes this way. So what do you think on this issue? And they will then go with whatever their leader says. Like, if you polled people, and we've done this in the past on this podcast at different surveys that have been done where they've... they've you know, people have read policies that are extremely pro-welfare and, and big government, told Republicans that it's a Republican um, policy, and they've said, great, love the policy. Told Democrats that it was Republican, they say, I hate it. It's like, people just aren't prepared to look. That's in the United States, of course. Do you think it's the same here in Australia? I'm sure. I'm sure it is. I wish we could, if we could find similar studies on Australians. Yeah, um, I don't know. But I think I'm not so sure Australians are quite as partisan as as Americans. I may mm. be wrong, but mm. obviously there are died in the wool Labor supporters and died in the wool coalition supporters. But mm. I think there are a lot of floaters. You know. Mm. Mm. Anyway, so that's distressing. I think that. Uh, not distressing, but it's just instructive that so many people will just side with whatever their leader happens to do. And the the idea of bombing Syria is a classic example. Yeah. Um, so 
Right-wing Tony suggested that perhaps the bombing of Syria was a signal to North Korea that we are prepared to do stuff. A lot of commentators have suggested the same. Mm. And North Korea is doing a bit of sabre rattling with um, um, parading their missiles and sending one off, which, which didn't get too far. And the suggestion is that perhaps we're in a slow motion Cuban missile crisis here. Paul? Mm. Think we are? Uh, I think it's probably comparable, yeah. Mm. And uh, one of the the items you sent me to read prior to this um, podcast was about Donald Trump um, breaking the news to the Chinese Premier yes. du- during dessert. Yes. And wasn't it revealing about Donald Trump? It just shows that for him, it's all about him. Yes. It's- so, dear listener, at this point, we'll play the tape. And- so what happens, as I said... We've just launched 59 missiles heading to Iraq. Well, you headed to Syria? Yes, heading toward Syria. I was sitting at the table. We had finished dinner. We're now having dessert. And we had the most beautiful piece of chocolate cake that you've ever seen. And I was given the message from the generals that the ships are locked and loaded. What do you do? And we made a determination to do it. So the missiles were on the way. And I said, Mr. President, let me explain something to you. This is during dessert. We've just fired 59 missiles, all of which hit, by the way, unbelievable from, you know, hundreds of miles away. It's so incredible. It's brilliant. It's genius. Our technology, our equipment is better than anybody by a factor of five. I mean, what we have in terms of technology, nobody can even come close to competing. We're almost finished. And what does he do? Finishes dessert and go home. And then they say, you know, the guy you just had dinner with just attacked. Okay, we're back from the video. And uh, yes, this was a meeting with uh, Donald Trump and his wife and the uh, Chinese Premier, President, yeah. Prime Minister, uh, President. What I is think. he? Is he, is he the Secretary of the Party? I, I don't uh, recall. I can't remember Secretary. his title either. Mm. But a dinner and, uh, well, a couple of things out of it. Was it Donald Trump's very fond of chocolate dessert? Yeah, wasn't that interesting? His <laughs> graphic description of the cake, of the, uh, the actual dessert, yeah. seemed to be more important than the Chinese Premier. Well, and the thing was that he could remember the cake, but he couldn't remember which country he bombed because he said he's... That he bombed Iraq, and then Wasn't the and the person interviewing said, oh, "You mean Syria? That's right, it's, Syria." Like it's a trivial detail, Trevor. Let's face it. What does it matter what country it was? The important point was he could tell the leader of China that he had just sent fifty nine missiles yes. against a foreign country. Well, that's how his mind works. Because he was thinking, "Wow, that Chinese leader's going to go home and think I was just speaking to a guy who's bombed a country." And clearly that was really talking about his own mind, where he's just chuffed and thinking, wow. I showed him what sort of guy I am. I'm a guy who can bomb a country. It's it's, It's, embarrassing for America. His narcissism is absolutely staggering, isn't Mm. it? So back on uh, North Korea, um, Donald Trump has tweeted, North Korea is looking for trouble. If China decides to help, that would be great. If not, we will solve the problem without them, exclamation mark, USA, <laughs> in capitals. 
Oh dear. Yeah. I, you know, I, it's like a high school kid. It's it's just embarrassing. So um, so Eddie, would you like to make any predictions? What's going to happen there, or what do you think? Because Ooh, it's very difficult, isn't it, to predict? Because mm. you'd expect that he would um, rattle a few sabers, mm. and the Chinese. I think the Chinese um, with. A lot of justification would be quite nervous about the situation now, and perhaps, perhaps they're deciding that North Korea has to be um, brought under a bit of control. But hmm. realistically, what do you think the Chinese can do? Do they have seriously that much influence? They could perhaps stop supplying whatever materials that they're supplying. Well, so, virtually everything, I imagine. Yeah. Do you think the North Koreans wouldn't then do a sneaky deal with? say, Iran, ship some oil from Iran, because the Iranians and the North Koreans probably have a few interests in common, like the development of nuclear weapons, for one thing, and missiles for another. Yeah, I don't know. I have no idea on that score. But um, it would be interesting. It would just would not surprise if Donald Trump decided that he's going to drop a bomb or two on North Korea. One bomb or two actually would probably be worse than dropping a lot of bombs because the North Koreans would probably rain bombs down on Seoul. Yes. So I think think the American military establishment are not such as childish as Trump and they know that if they're going to attack North Korea... They have to make a thorough attack, you know. They can't just drop one or two bombs as a symbolic act Mm. like they did with Syria. I don't think it would be like that. Mm. Well, here's where our next article comes into play, 12th Man, because this is one about JFK versus the military. And, dear listener, you might be thinking in all of this, well, at least Trump will be getting some expert advice from the military and... You know, hopefully they will curtail his dreams and aspirations and knock some sense into him and cancel any bad ideas. But this article that's uh, noted in the, on the show notes uh, refers to um, President Kennedy and the battles that he had with his military. And um, very, it's a long article, so I'm just going to pick out a few bits and pieces from it. But uh, first part was just in relation to the Cold War and Europe. And at that time, crazily enough, it seemed that um, uh, certain commanders within the military had the ability to unilaterally decide to send a nuclear bomb if they thought it was appropriate without consulting the president. So uh, just quoting from this here. Kennedy's biggest worry about the military was not the personalities involved, but rather the freedom of field commanders to launch nuclear weapons without explicit permission from the commander-in-chief. Ten days after becoming president, Kennedy learned from his national security advisor, um, George Bundy, that a subordinate commander faced with a substantial Russian military action could start the thermonuclear holocaust on his own initiative. I think that's been changed. I think... But I think now it is. there's nothing to stop Trump. If he says, press that button, then it just goes. So, so that was interesting in relation to the Cold War. Um, but, of course, the Bay of Pigs fiasco really um, upset Kennedy. And um, afterward, Kennedy accused himself of naivete for trusting the military's judgment. 
that the Cuban operation was well thought out and capable of success. Those sons of bitches with all their fruit salad just sat there nodding, saying it would work, Kennedy later said of the chiefs. He repeatedly told his wife, oh my God, the bunch of advisers that we inherited. And Kennedy concluded that he'd been overly deferential to the CIA and the military chiefs. And he later told Schlesinger he'd made a mistake of thinking that the military and intelligence people have some secret skill not available to ordinary mortals. His lesson was never rely on the experts. Um, And a bit later on, um, he realised his primary task as a president was to bring the military under strict control. And he is quoted as saying, the first thing I'm going to tell my successor, Kennedy told guests at the White House, is to watch the generals and to avoid feeling that just because they were military men, their opinions on military matters were worth a damn. So scathing. And I unfortunately suspect, 12th man, that not much has changed. Yeah, I, it's really hard to say, isn't it? I mean, mm. different generation of military leaders. Do they have a, a different attitude? I don't know. And obviously they're experts, but they're experts on how to lob bombs at people. And, yes. And that's their specialty, isn't it? But they get overconfident as well. Mm. So a friend of mine who was in the Australian uh, Air Force was describing this um, exercise that they did against the US military where the US had um, some aircraft carriers and, and troops and and it was like a six or eight week sort of thing where they were the US was going to try to invade Australia at some beach in Queensland and um, trying to simulate real world stuff and uh, what they did was they created the Australians just created some cardboard aeroplanes so when the US planes came along and supposedly bombed the airfields and wiped out the Australians they'd actually already removed the aircraft to somewhere else and and the notional kills that were accredited uh, were just of cardboard planes. Did the Americans know they were cardboard? No, so they fell for that. <laughs> and they didn't do enough reconnaissance to wow. see that. Meanwhile, uh, Australia's uh, F-111s, I think, would launch from um, Mount Isa and start heading towards the coast. And the US Navy would see them coming and they would have to launch their aircraft in response in case they were going to get bombed by the F-111s. I think they were F-111s. Mm. Anyway, our planes had much longer range, could stay at the air a lot, a lot longer. So they would come out to the fringes of the US uh, aircraft's capability and the US aircraft would be running out of fuel, have to turn back, and another plane would have to leave and come up. And Initially they were doing it in pairs and then they just got exhausted, these guys, where they couldn't keep launching aircraft. And because, I mean, when you're attacking, it's more difficult than when you're offend- defending. So Australia had these long-range aircraft and the benefits of home soil. Yeah. The US um, were completely um, uh, ragged after a few weeks of having to... You know, your pilots can only fly so much and your aircraft starts to wear out. And then there was a, uh, at that point, after about six weeks, the US had thought, well, that's it, we've bombed all of their, um, their, their, well, cardboard airplanes, I didn't know they were, we're going to land our troops now. And, um, 
And as they were about to land, then the Australians whipped out their real aircraft and flew over. And the US aircraft was so exhausted they hadn't um, been able to launch enough aircraft. So according to the war game um, scenario, the Australians wiped out the troops and, and won the game. Interesting. But it was a, a classic example where I think often has happened in war with Americans is they have so much firepower, they get overconfident drop a million bombs on somewhere and think, well, let's clear that area, let's go, and it hasn't cleared it at all. And yeah. oh, I just think um, I, oh, I have no faith in their Look, capacity what? to conduct a good operation anywhere. Yeah, mm. I, don't, I don't know. I have a friend also who was in the Australian military and served in Vietnam, and uh, from my many conversations with him, I get the feeling he had a pretty high regard for the Americans. Right. Um, okay. But he also had a very high regard for the Australians. And in mm. fact, he told me that the Americans uh, valued the Australian contribution. They thought mm. the Australians were very good at what they did. Mm. But mm. I don't know whether that's just, you know. Mm. You do hear that. Twelfth mm. um, uh, Man, moving away from Syria and America and war. Bit closer to home. Dear listener, not too long ago, you looked at your podcast app and saw that a new episode of the Iron Fist and Velvet Glove podcast was available to download. Did you silently think to yourself, wait, a new podcast? I like listening to those guys. If so, then you qualify as a potential donor to the podcast. Your donation will help cover some expenses, but more importantly, your donation tells the boys that they are on the right track and to keep up the good work. A dollar a show is all they ask. Go to their website at ironfistvelvetglove.com.au and click on the donations link. A really interesting development in the last week or so has been the video of the two ladies from uh, Hizbut Taria who gave a video uh, instruction on how, um, how men can beat their wives, essentially. So what we'll do, Paul, before discussing it, is we'll just play the audio from that. Yeah. But I would like to, you know, talk about the actual measures, like what are those actual disciplinary yeah. measures before I go into detail that, you know, let's look at the worst and yeah. what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala suggested. And it's those women on whose part you feel disobedience. Three measures are recommended. Mm-hmm. You know, advise them first, mm-hmm. leave them alone in bed, and hit them. Okay. You know, it's simple, like, advice them means explaining the rule of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and encourage her to be obedient. Okay. And warn her against disobedience. And if it produces the res- desired result, then all well and all good. But if it doesn't, then the other measure which he can use as husband can, you know, refuse to share the bed with her mm-hmm. and not being intimate with her okay. or by not sleeping. And if this doesn't work, and it does not bring the desired effect, then the third measure, which is permitted, I want to make this point very clear, that he is permitted, mm-hmm. not obliged here mm-hmm. or not encouraged, but he's mm-hmm. permitted to hit her. So how do we understand You know, this? and you know, mm-hmm. you know, subhanAllah, that's what a beautiful, you know, the, uh, the blessing from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Mm-hmm. That he said not to take all the steps, you know, at one time. Yeah. It is one after the other. 
But before, you know, I directly want to elaborate on what that, you know, that what part is. That is you know, what is the third about? option is all about? That is what, you know, everyone is talking about. But they're waiting until the end of the video yes. to hear this. And Al-Hassan al-Basri said that this means that it should not cause pain. So I'm talking about with the reference of hitting. You know, what kind of hitting? Al-Hassan al-Basri said this means that it should not cause pain. Atta said, I said to Ibn Abbas, what is the kind of hitting that is not harsh? He said, hitting with a siwak and the like. A siwak? Yeah, actually, I got a siwak, you know, because I wanted to show that what siwak is. You know, it's a stick. It's a small stick. Uh, you know, used for cleaning the teeth. May I have the honor? Of course, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, Shafi jurist, he mm. said, a coiled scarf. A you know, coiled scarf. It, that's another narration, and, you know, what kind of hitting is that with the coil? So, so we, ah. have, we have a piece of fabric here just and to, it's, to yeah, demonstrate. It's, yeah, and in other narration, he said like a coiled or a folded handkerchief. You, I mean, it, it's, it's very evident that this is symbolic in nature. And it's not as um, what people um, have understood or what, what people would like to have understood. So this is the reality of that, of that third disciplinary option. Yes, and you know, but the different commentaries mm. about striking, yeah. scholars emphasize that striking should be done in such a way as not to cause harm or mm. pain. Okay, so we're back from the audio and... Uh, <laughs> in Australia, such a thing, it's... it's it's amazing, isn't it? Your thoughts when you saw the video the first time? I thought it was very dishonest, to be honest, because those women, if they're, um, you know, if they take any interest in what's going on in the world and why people are concerned about um, uh, Islam in general, they would be fully aware that people are concerned about the what we perceive to be the normalization of violence in Muslim majority cultures. Yes. And they were, they were trying to claim that the instruction to beat wives was purely symbolic and that it referred only to a tiny little, like a, yes, you know, like, like a, a chopstick, like a chopstick. But, but, yes. You, if you look at the video, the stick that the lady pulls out is about the size of a chopstick. Yeah, I thought yeah. it was very ingenuous, didn't mm. you? I did. Um, well, how much is delusional and how much is intentional dishonesty is hard mm. to know. Yeah. Um, but a couple of things from it, you know. Uh, first off, for a man, uh, his option number one is to advise her uh, of what she should be doing and to um, explain to her the the, um, the error of her way yeah, that's it that's the phrase if that fails then move to step two which is to refuse sex wasn't that an interesting one yes I mean have you seen some of these guys Paul I mean the threat of refusing sex is supposed to be um Somehow, something where a woman's going to go, oh, goodness me, I'll, I'll, don't do I, that. I, I, I repent, I'll yeah, do whatever you want please, now, please, please don't, please don't withhold sex I from me. I can't live without sex with you. Yes, yeah. oh, please don't remove our intimacy, like, for goodness yeah. sake, with a straight face. Then, if that doesn't work, uh, you can hit her. 
But now, as they said... But only with a chopstick. <laughs> uh, you know, their interpretation is that it should not cause pain. It's with this little stick the size of a chopstick and just yeah. tap her on the arm symbolically. But the bit that they just fail to recognise here is that these three options are, giving, are given on the basis of an increasing intensity. Okay, low level didn't work. Let's move to middle level. If that doesn't work, let's move to high level. And the idea that a, a slight tap on the shoulder with a chopstick is somehow higher than the refusing sex or the advising one just doesn't make sense. Yeah. No, it doesn't. You, you, you've, you've jumped, you've then gone down to a lesser thing, certainly. So, I don't think anyone was convinced. No, it, but they just think we're crazy if, uh, if we think that. So... The other phrase I got from that, Paul, was um, uh, she said, what a beautiful blessing that Alice said that a man doesn't need to do all three at once, but these are to be done in turn as necessary. So that was a beautiful blessing from Allah. We should keep in mind. I, I just think those women are... Um, I, I, I think they're ingenuous, Trevor. Really, right. really. I think it's yes. dishonest yes. because they would be fully aware... I mean, let's face it, people talk, people chatter about what their neighbours and their friends in the community are doing. They would be fully aware that there, there must be some men, and I'm not at all implying that, that Muslim men are habitual wife beaters, but in all communities, some mm. men are violent towards their spouses, mm. and some women are too, let's face it. But mm. mostly men would be the ones doing the... Um, you know, the severe physical battering, and they would be aware. Surely they would be hearing stories from other women mm. about some members of their community who've been beaten up. Mm. They must be. Mm. It can't be not happening at mm. all, because we all know that it does happen, mm. you, know, you know. And um, did you see Mark Latham's uh, video that I, I sent a link to? He, he was implying that... Um, he was actually arguing with people on one of those daily shows on TV, on the commercial channels. Right. And the, the people, the compares of the program were saying, this is right across the community. It affects all, the, all uh, economic strata of society. This is domestic violence. Uh, it's not about working class, professional class, rich, poor, anything like that. And Latham said, that's absolute rubbish. He said the statistics show it's overwhelmingly in the lower economic strata of society. Right. And he said, you guys are just going along with the same old politically correct um, dogma that it's not a matter of class. He said it's absolutely a matter of class. Is he right, though? I don't, know. It, I don't I, know. I don't trust him. I don't totally trust him either, but he claimed to have statistics and uh, he said... See, that's where I just don't trust... Like, he's a Donald Trump as far as I'm concerned. I couldn't trust anything unless he showed it. And, he has a and, bit more integrity than Donald Trump. Well, I saw on the other night that Rose Batty, um, the former Australian of the Year, and she was on the Ando program having a portrait, and, and she was a well-educated upper middle... or middle-class, certainly, lady who Rose suffered Batty. domestic... Violence, yes. That was under the impression she was pretty working class. Well, she had a nice home and she was well educated. I would, she, that's how she described herself on the show. So, 
seemed pretty middle class to me. Um, but anyway, I I don't trust Mark Latham as far as I could throw him. I'd want to see the study. Um, yeah. Look, I haven't seen it either. Yeah. But, you know, just he, putting it out there. Yeah. Um, the leadership of Hasbat Taria responded, well, when people heard and saw the video, there was uproar, and the leadership came back and and um, called on Australian Muslims to stand by teachings that says uh, that permits a discipline in a marriage, mm. and they said um, uh, the very first thing we must not do is accept the line of blame, and we particularly must not turn on each other. Internal Muslim community disagreements should be discussed internally on Islamic terms, not as a show for public consumption. So that's Hasbat mm. uh, Taria yeah. and their response. Um, but that's quite typical of them anyway. They're not yeah. willing to take criticism from anyone, are they? Because no. they're essentially a, a supremacist organisation, Trevor. Mm. I mm. think you'd agree. They, they see themselves as the the bearers of the the great supreme truth of life and that anybody who disagrees with them as beneath them mm. quite frankly mm. so you know that's their entire attitude to everything i i take it you saw that interview with um alberici on the abc yeah uh, some time ago some time ago and that guy was extremely arrogant and mm. rude and he, you know, he obviously, uh, I, I don't think he even wanted to be interviewed by a woman, quite no, frankly. No, he wouldn't have. He would have hated it. Mm. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And he was very combative. Mm. Mm. We should play that another time. Um, we mentioned hospitals just before. And uh, there's a new hospital in South Australia. Um, there's the revelation that the new Royal Adelaide Hospital has been designed to include a specially designed Muslim prayer room with directions to Mecca and a separate bathroom for the washing of feet with a separate, well, the way this article describes it, namby-pamby multi-faith room where everyone, every other denomination will get lumped in together. So, yeah. so two rooms, yeah. uh, one set aside especially for Muslims with appropriate bathroom facilities and then every other religion seemingly happy to be lumped in together into a common prayer room. Mm. Your thoughts? Oh, my thoughts is it's completely ridiculous. I mean, if they were so concerned about people's observing their religious, um, you know, um, requirements, Jesus, why didn't they have a, a chapel in every hospital? I mean, do they? I know they have in some, in the, the ones that are church-run, but not in public hospitals, for goodness sake. I, I don't know. And, don't... you know, why didn't they have a little synagogue or a little, you know, Hindu temple or a Buddhist temple or a, yes. a Shinto temple, you know? I yes. mean, if they're going to be fair and equitable about it, they should be installing one for everybody, you know, one for each religion, not one for the Muslims and another one for everybody else. Yes. That's uh, smacks of uh, trying to avoid the complaints that they inevitably might get of being discriminatory or bigoted. It's insulting to peace-loving Muslims that it's saying you can't be expected to share a ring with other faiths. It's... Yeah, so much for tolerance. For... 
Anyway, I mean, if the hospital has a skerrick of public money, which no doubt it has, there shouldn't be anything like that in there. Yeah. And um, Certainly yeah. not in public hospitals. I think you'd agree that mm. public money shouldn't be spent on anything religious. No. If they want to practice religion, that should be a private matter. It mm. shouldn't be something that the public is funding or supporting. Mm. Mm. 457 Visa in the news lately. And, uh, and new requirements for citizenship. And on 457 visa, personally, I don't think there's any evidence that those people are taking jobs from Australians who actually want them. It doesn't seem to be that that's the case. Mm. So that's the one of the arguments for changing it. But yeah, I'm, I'm not really I'm not convinced that, that that's the case. I'm, I'm not sure. I did hear some, some commentators say that the... Some, some companies were rotting the system and bringing in cheap labour. Mm. Um, I know there was a, um, an abattoir up Toowoomba Way mm. uh, where they used to bring in a lot of Chinese meat workers. Yeah. And I believe, I don't know, but I, I suspected at the time it was because the Chinese would work for a lot less. Mm. Um, and that may be the case in other industries. I, I wouldn't at all be surprised because some people were saying that they were supposed to uh, only do it if they couldn't find an Australian, but apparently some of their attempts to find Australian staff were laughable. Right. Uh, in other words, they didn't really try very hard at all. They'd you know, put, out, put one advertisement for staff, and if it didn't, didn't work in a week, they'd start mm. inviting people from overseas. In other words, mm. they were rotting the system because they probably thought they could pay, you know, do it more economically or perhaps with fewer problems with the unions I have a strong suspicion that the abattoir is a bit like fruit picking and just there's just not enough Australians who want to do it it may be true mm. maybe true but the other part of it is a test of of citizenship where people have to uh, speak English and and then affirm that they abide by so-called Australian values um uh, I think in the past I've said I was a bit more um, thinking that that would work but my view these days is people will just lie and say anything like if they just ask questions they'll just they'll just come up with whatever they need to say oh yes of course I love Jews and I love gay people and I believe in marriage equality and blah 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 and mm. um, uh, they'll just say what they need to say to pass and a test I would have thought Peter Dutton admitted as much when he was asked if wouldn't people just lie mm. to uh, do the test. And he said, yeah, of course, some people will lie. But, mm. yeah, I don't know. I, I think it has, um, it has some, some merit, at least in putting it out there to people who are, aspire to become uh, citizens and to migrate here that, yes, they are required to, to share the aspirations and the values of the, of the average Australian. I think there is some merit in it, Trevor. Because um, you can't then turn around, you know, I mean, well, if you didn't have that requirement, you can't then later down the track when, the, when you find there are subgroups in the community who, who have acquired citizenship and are perhaps um, practice, you know, engaging in customs or practices that are not in keeping with accepted Australian values you can't then turn around and say 
we don't accept that. And they say, mm. but we're Australians, we have the right to do this, you know. Mm. We, you, you didn't tell us, you didn't warn us that this wouldn't be okay. Mm. So at least it has, that, it has that value of laying out some ground rules at the outset so that people can't claim they weren't, weren't forewarned mm. that their, their old country customs wouldn't go down well and wouldn't be accepted. Mm. We've mentioned it before, and I can't remember if it was Sweden or Switzerland. Get them mixed up, like like Donald Trump. But I think it was Switzerland. They both start with this. Yeah, that's right. And they're over that way somewhere. Um, I think it was Switzerland, where the village had a say in the citizenship application of people who had moved into the village. That's and there was an American guy who had not made friends with anybody in the village despite having lived there for 12 years and he applied for citizenship and they said no. Um, so Sounds like Switzerland. And, and, there was another, and there was another woman who had complained about the cowbells as being too loud and as being uh, cruel to the cows and had also raised fuss about various other traditional uh, things, which also sound Swiss. Um, so, and she was denied citizenship as well by the sort of the village. So the powers that be granting citizenship actually went down to the village level and, and asked at that level. So. I actually like the Swiss um, system and I don't, I'm not familiar with it in great detail, but I know they have a lot of, a lot of referendums. Right. They have a lot of, well, plebiscite is perhaps the more appropriate mm. term. Um, I, ha- I have some Swiss um, people in my in my classes, and I've occasionally asked them, and I've said to them, "You guys have a have a great democracy in your country because you 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 know you don't have a cent- two centralized power. They don't just have one national leader. Mm. It's a kind of you know it's a kind of shared leadership. And I thought that seemed like a good idea." rather than concentrating power in, in the hands of too few people. And one of my, my, my friends said, yeah, but, you know, we have to go and vote all the time. You know, you get tired of having to go and vote on stuff. And I yes. said, for goodness sake, that's terrific, you know, that yeah. the government actually bothers to ask you and get your opinion. Yeah, but I don't know. That means other people get to vote on things all the time as well. Like, to some extent, I would prefer... People with expertise to be deciding these things. Like Richard Dawkins said that it shouldn't have been a, uh, a referendum on the Brexit vote because he said, well, how would... Was it Dawkins? Yes. I thought it was the uh, the philosopher. What's his name? The other guy, the guy with the long hair that comes to Australia. I thought it was Richard Dawkins. No, it was... Um, it, well, Dawkins may have, but right. there, was, there was another guy who... Another very prominent British philosopher. Right. Uh, his name just escapes me. But, anyway, yeah. But he... He was against Brexit. Right. And he said, oh, why do you ask that rabble? You know, why not let the, the, the experts who know what they're doing? Yeah. Well, Richard Dawkins said, what are you asking me for? I don't know anything about economics and the value of this to, to us. So we shouldn't, you shouldn't be asking me this. And I would be worried with a system that, that asked Australians all the time what should happen because you get some popular populist responses that could be terrible That's and true. i mean you might get something like the superannuation across the line exactly. if, like i, I, I think there's, the point. I think there's a point economics. where you say we elect people to do a job and we expect them to 
garner together the expertise and every four years we'll decide whether they've done a good job or not. But I, I really don't want a lot of this stuff put to, to yeah. you know, the opinions of the average Joe because myself included wouldn't know most of the time yeah. what the correct answer is. And Certainly, um, in, you know, for formulating economic policy or something like that, you, you wouldn't be asking people who aren't trained in economics, surely, would you? Yeah. So, um, so the Swiss can have that system if that's what they're doing. Before we started, we briefly mentioned Dave Rubin, another podcaster, very popular. A rival of yours. Yeah, a rival, yes. <laughs> uh, well, he just earns a huge amount of money. Does He's he? a big following, yes. Uh, unbelievable. Um, his luck. Um, you like him, and yeah. I actually don't like him. Yeah, I, I, I was surprised when you said that, but mm-hmm. um, yeah, I find him quite likable because he's a, I don't know, he, he comes across as very amiable, very reasonable. Um, yes, he comes across that way, but he's very right wing. He says he was, he says he's notionally left, left. but... If you look at the guests that he has on that show, and he says he's always wanting to discuss with the left these ideas and have a battle of ideas with the left. Yeah? Always saying it. But if you look at his guest list and identify who's right wing and who's left wing, the answer is there's only a very, very, very small handful of of what you would call true left wingers mm. Uh, compared to bucket loads of right wingers, and is, is that his fault or is it? Yes, just that because they... he decides who goes on his show, and that's fine. He can decide, but he shouldn't be pretending that he wants a battle of ideas all the time and he wants to discuss contrary opinions mm. because he essentially gets people with the same opinions all the time. So yeah, I don't know, Trevor. Mm. You you've probably listened to him more than I have. I watched yeah. last night his interview with um, Milo Yiannopoulos. Well, there you go. Yeah. He didn't agree with Milo on a lot of things. Right. I mean, Milo's pretty... pretty Milo's on the nose right. now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he's yeah. pretty far right. And mm. I, I thought I thought it was entertaining, but I thought Milo was... Uh, you know, uh, I, I, I didn't agree with a lot of what he said, I have to say, but mm. mainly, mainly because I thought Milo basically believes in Milo, you know. Mm. He's a self-promoter like Donald Trump. Mm. Anyway, uh, that podcast I mentioned before, Serious Inquiries Only, he had a spiel about Dave Rubin and and put forward that view. And as I was listening to it, I was going, yeah, I think you're right. And he actually did a study of the number of guests and and put forward which ones he said were potentially left-wing. And Why don't you write to Dave and drop him a line and say, hey, Dave, Dave. Here's the challenge. Get some, some true well, leftists on your show well, for a change. Uh, serious inquiries only is doing it all the time. and he, He's notionally left-wing and he refuses to speak to him. So You think serious inquiries only is left-wing? Slightly left-wing, okay. yes, yes. He, he's yeah. openly Democrat and... Because so Dave Rubin claims to be notionally left, doesn't yes, he? Yes, yes. Except he's disillusioned with a lot of leftist yes. politics. And he claims to want a battle of ideas, but you won't find too many people actually putting forward the regressive left view that he keeps mm. complaining about. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So there we go. 
Dave Rubin. Um, this Pope is just an. He's people have a very positive view about this Pope, but he's a nutter. Um, quoting the Pope, uh, Christ is risen. He says, "This is not a fantasy. The resurrection of Christ is not a party with many flowers." He said during Easter Mass on Sunday in St Peter's Square. The world has many misfortunes, such as disease, human trafficking, wars, destruction, revenge and hatred. We may be tempted to ask, but where is the Lord, he said. Today the church continues to say, stop, Jesus is risen. The Pope said that before God we can each say, I do not know how this goes, but I'm sure that Christ is risen, and I bet on that. Brothers and sisters, this is what I wanted to tell you. Go home now, repeating in your heart, Christ is risen. Empty dogma. <laughs> it is. I mean, it's so empty, isn't it? Completely empty dogma. What's the point? There's nothing original in it. I mean, he, nothing worthwhile in it. You know, I mean, people say he's, you know, he's a champion of the poor, and you know, he, probably in his heart of hearts, he is, but. He's a very mixed-up guy, isn't he? He is. You know, that sounded to me a little bit like the Hillsong um, service we went to. and that was fun. And the music that was played. It was just banal sort of, he is risen, he is risen, praise the Lord, blah, blah, without any... It's a it, mantra. It, it, yes, it it's was. It's just repeating the mantra. Yes. And it's this idea that if you say it often enough, magic will happen. Hmm. It's magical thinking, mm. pure, pure mm. and simple. Mm. Paul, we keep getting told Australia is a racist country. Do you feel like we're racist? I, I honestly don't. And but hang probably on. that's sitting there as a privileged white yes, male. That's of my course. white privilege speaking. But look, honestly, you've I, never been you've never been racially abused in your life, have you? I haven't. No. Well, I have. I'm a privileged white male. I've been racially abused by, by who? By an Aboriginal woman. Okay. Yeah. She was protesting on uh, not the Captain Cook Bridge, one of the ones, uh, and as they marched past, she was yelling at me as, as a white trash, blah, blah, blah. And she really gave yeah, it to yeah. me. I was just standing there watching, looking quite meek and mild. So that's the only, uh, that's the only racial abuse I think I've seen was when I was abused. Um, I, look, I haven't had a lot to do with Aboriginal Australians, but I have had some contact. Um, I, I had the, an interesting experience when I was in my early 20s. I met a young Aboriginal woman um, who invited, this was in Sydney, and she invited me to travel with her to Alice Springs. Right. And I did. And, we, you know, there was not, no intimate relationship or anything. Mm. She just said, hey, I'm going to Alice, she, you know, she liked me, and she said, hey, I'm going to Alice Springs, would mm. you like to come? And I... I was pretty footloose and fancy free at the time. And I mm. said, yeah, why not? Mm. So I actually hitchhiked to her family home, which was in Broken Hill. Mm. And uh, then from there, we, you know, we took bus and aeroplane to, to Alice Springs. Now, I, I think I stayed one night at her mother's house uh, with some of her siblings and before she got there. Mm -hmm. And they were terrific. And, they, mm. you know, they... Her, her younger sisters, I think, took me swimming in the local dam. and But they, you know, I, I recall them saying to me, 
oh, you, you white fellas think we don't get sunburnt and stuff like this. It was quite amusing. Right. You know, but they, they, they didn't treat me badly. In fact, mm. they tro- treated me terrific. And then in Alice Springs, I actually stayed in a house owned by Charles Perkins. Right. Um, <laughs> together with a bunch of um, mostly white, um, you know, young professionals who were working for the Aboriginal Lands Council and, and health services and legal services, you know. Yep. And they were shacked up in, in a house owned by Charlie Perkins and they just invited me to, to stay there, which I did. And everyone was terrific. And, you know, um, I had a very positive experience. But, and, you know, in other trips that I've encountered Aboriginal people, I've had terrific relations with them. But look, I have to say, you know, I haven't had that much experience. Mm. But my overall impression that is that Australia's come a long way mm. in the last half century, mm. that we have basically as a, as a nation decided racism is a bad thing, mm. that our indigenous brothers and sisters should be enjoying the same standard of living as the rest of us. And the government has thrown mountains of money at the problem. Mm. Um, I think it's a complex issue, I think you'd agree. And mm. clearly there's a long way to go. But I don't think it's through lack of um, goodwill. Mm. So uh, it's difficult uh, It's difficult relying on personal anecdotes. It is. So, I mean, people complain about Muslims, for example. Um, and then somebody will say, but I know heaps of Muslim people who are fantastic love them to death like we get on so well and you're giving a great example there and this is the problem with just sort of relying on personal anecdotes yeah. and what we really need are cold hard statistics yes actually before we move on to the statistics i i found this article that i've referred to previously and it's by jacinta Nampijinpa price uh from the australian february 2017 uh, and her experience in Alice Springs, and she said, um, uh, in Alice Springs, a member of the public, is f- so this is an Aboriginal woman, uh, in Alice Springs, a, a member of the public is far more likely to be randomly assaulted, physically or verbally, if they are perceived as white rather than black. Grossly offensive racist insults are used liberally in the streets of Alice Springs against white people. Mm. I have walked the streets of this town with my white friends to protect them from this sort of thing. Mm. But there have been no complaints under Section 18C. And she goes on, Both my mother, a senior Walpiri woman and former Minister of the Crown, and I have been vilified in obscene, sexist and racist terms by somebody who described themselves as an Indigenous activist because we refuse to be told what to think and say. I've lost count of how many times I've been called a coconut and much worse. We have not once been insulted in racist terms by white people, not as far as we know. That was a really interesting article uh, referred to previously. So again, though, anecdotal, and no doubt there's plenty of black people who could say, uh, I've been racially vilified, and they'd be quite correct. So this article um, talks about... A study that was done uh, by two Swish, Swedish uh, economists looking at uh, 80 different countries and ranking them on their racism based on responses to well-publicised surveys. And 
The breakdown is that the most, uh, one of the key questions that was asked of people was whether they'd be prepared to live, whether they'd be happy to live with somebody next door who was of a different race. That was one of the questions. Uh, what the data showed was that Anglo and Latin countries are the most tolerant. So the United Kingdom and its Anglo former colonies, such as the United States, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and Latin American countries, and a few Scandinavian ones, were the most tolerant. Uh, India and Jordan were the least. Uh, it was quite a big variation across Europe. The Middle East was not very tolerant and there was a couple of outliers that South Korea, it turned out, was not very tolerant, and Pakistan seemed to be remarkably tolerant, which doesn't sort of match up. But some cold hard statistics on that one. I mean, if people say, is Australia a racist country, you, we can each you know, trot out these anecdotes, but there's one of cold hard facts that, okay, compared to the rest of the world, we're actually in the top echelon of tolerant countries as you and I would suspect. Yeah, it, it, you know, I, I do think that Australia is probably one of the countries that has improved its game quite a lot. Hmm. We've got to rattle through some of these or my wife's going to get angry with me, Paul, when she listens to this. <laughs> uh, here's a good one. Um, female track team, this is in the US, female track team welcomes boy who thinks he's a girl onto the team. Uh, Cromwell High School in Connecticut has welcomed a freshman boy who identifies as a girl onto the girls' track team. Uh, his name is, uh, or her name, sorry, is Andrea Yearwood. Yearwood, I'll, I'll read it as it's written with the his and hers, okay, dear listener. Yearwood informed his parents that he was transgender in middle school. He previously ran on the boys' track team for the school before getting permission to participate on the girls' team. The 15-year-old has yet to take any steps in his transition but plans on taking hormone and puberty blockers and is considering a sex reassignment surgery in the future. The young boy ran in a competition on Wednesday posting impressive times. Uh, uh, this is the coach. She has been a member of the team running hard day in and day out, said the girls' track coach, Brian Calhoun. Happy to have a girl on the team that runs pretty quickly. It is going to be a positive thing for the whole team. When asked about the issue of inherent unfairness of a boy competing against young girls, Yearwood's mother replied, I know they'll say it is unfair and not right, but my counter to that is, why not? She is competing and practicing and giving her all and performing and excelling based on her skills. Let that be enough. Let her do that and be proud of that. Paul? I don't know what to say, Trevor, because, you know, I, I believe in tolerating people, you know, if they want to identify as, uh, as a different sexuality. I don't have a problem with that, but... It does seem a little bit unfair to the the other girls, doesn't it? I've got all the sympathy in the world for somebody who's transgender and wants mm. to change yeah. gender. Like, go ahead. Like, if good luck. What you want. Good luck to you. But 
When you're in a condition where you're full of testosterone and you are in a male body... Developing male muscles. And when you see a photo of the guy, you can imagine, or the girl, the 15-year-old, fairly well-developed, it would seem. Yeah. If you're in that position, you have to say to yourself, well, I have an unfair advantage here. If I want to play a sport, I should do it at a very amateur level or I should choose a sport where my extra strength doesn't matter. Mm. Um, Because it does Because I clearly have an unfair advantage over people uh, which I shouldn't take advantage of. Like, you you should be ashamed of yourself for taking advantage of that in a competitive environment against other people and go, well, yeah. I mean, uh, it'd, be, it'd be like, you know, me entering a maths competition against five-year-olds or something because mm. I suddenly identified as a five-year-old. Mm. And don't joke, it does happen. There is a guy in the US who's 50 and is now identifying as a six-year-old girl. So... Is that for real? Yes, it is. So... By all means, change gender. But if you're under a significant advantage, show some respect for other people and don't be so selfish. Mm. Uh, Sure, you've got issues, but you're being incredibly selfish if you do that. Live your life however you want, but Mm. don't uh, take advantage of it to... To beat other people. Yes. Yeah. I mean, once you've been on, on a hormone treatment and your testosterone levels are the same as everybody else and you've been on it for a few years, okay, then you can think about competing. I mean, it's pretty obvious that yeah. physically yes. men have an advantage of course. athletically over women. Wasn't there a case many years ago, you being a tennis player would know this, Billie Jean King, was it, who challenged yes. uh, some male tennis players. Yes. She, she reckoned she could equal the the top rank of male tennis players and some fair not not really low but certainly no. far from the topest top rank tennis player men. he was not a tournament player at that stage and he beat and, him, didn't he? and and they had close tussles but uh the williams sisters when they first arrived on the scene in australia in one of their first tournaments they would have been teenagers you know thought that they were good enough to be a top 100 male player and were you know mouthing off and some guy who was like you know number 300 just put down his beer and his cigarette and said okay like and went out on the court and and wiped them off the court you know six one six two or something like that it just wasn't a contest Mm. so um and that was the williams sisters so yeah i mean yeah we have previously discussed cultural appropriation, one of our favourite topics. Love it. And uh, it's big with American Indian stuff mm. in America again. Yeah. And uh, where people have been thrown out of universities for wearing uh, sort of Indian uh, style garments and things, or, or shamed into leaving, if not forced into leaving. Well, there's a football team in America called the Washington Redskins. So activists have been saying for ages, um, this is just an uh, insult to Native Americans and uh, it should stop and it's cultural appropriation and insulting. And the interesting thing is 
that somebody polled Native Americans and asked them what they thought and And surveyed 504 Native American people and survey said overwhelmingly, uh, 8 and 10 said, do not have a problem. In fact, quite like the team. Good luck to them if that's what they want to do. So uh, the activists were not happy. And, Uh, And refused to accept the poll results. That's right. Quote, I don't agree with them. And I don't agree that this is a valid way of surveying public opinion in Indian country. Mm. So they'll continue the battle because yeah. they just disagree. They refuse to accept the results. Mm. Um, across every demographic group, the vast majority of Native Americans say the team name does not offend them, including 80% who identify as politically liberal, 85% of college graduates, 90% of those enrolled in a tribe and 90% of non-football fans, and 91% of those between the ages of 18 and 39. So those subgroups of Native Americans, uh, it was not an issue. Hmm. Uh, What makes this even more striking, 12th man? Because that may not surprise you, or it may. The general public outside of the Native American community appears to object more strongly to the name (laughs) than Indians do. That is interesting, isn't it? So this is the virtue signalling. It really is. Yes. It's people looking... (laughs) People who think someone should be offended looking for offence. Yes. Yes. So amongst non-Native Americans, 23% called for the Redskins name to be... uh, dismissed. So. Do you think that they, they, they're trying to, yeah, it is virtue signaling, but yes. they're, they're trying to say, look, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a respectful person. So, yes, I imagine they probably could be offended. So let's change the name and, and make them happy. Yes. Yeah. So it's a very tricky business to claim to speak on behalf of these minority groups. And it's insulting to suggest that they think the same way. Mm-hmm. And it's dangerous territory and it's great that somebody's actually polled this minority group and uh yeah so so that was good and um and there was one uh one lady here because i think people were saying well there's still a small number who do object so because of that very small number we should cease using that name and this woman said um if, uh, if 100 people are okay with the situation and one person has a problem with it, all of a sudden everyone has to conform, said New York resident Judy Joyner, um, who's also from Native American heritage. Mm. She said, you'll find people who don't like puppies and kittens and Santa Claus. It doesn't mean we're going to wipe them off the face of the earth. <laughs> yeah, we're not going to stop eating pork because... Jews and Muslims don't approve of it, are yes. we? Yeah. So, um, well, we're desperately over time and I'll be in big trouble. So, Paul... Uh, we'll hold the next story over. We will, for another time. Yeah. It's, Very good. It's been real. Thanks, Paul. So. <laughs> Bye, everyone. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, First up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said and 
when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode and really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to, I think, $10 and various ones in between. It's really, what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe... You really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners and that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.